right now, I just want to share God's word with you because that's a lot more powerful than my my story. Um, and I want to talk to you about God's plan for the nations, for all peoples, for all tribes, tongues, and and nations. Um, and we're going to look uh, look at that from Isaiah chapter forty five. Um, you know, a lot of times when people say, oh, someone's going to come and speak on missions, they, they usually think of Matthew 28, or that's probably the most famous one, right? The Great Commission given to us by, by our Lord. Um, but God's plan for the nations didn't start in Matthew 28. Um, you see, God's plan to draw the nations to himself for his glory is laid out at the beginning of the Bible, right? Like throughout the book of Genesis, and it's promised in the end, right? When we read passages like Revelation 5, 7, 22. Uh, but God also works to guarantee and bring about his promised good news for all peoples in between Genesis and Revelation. Sometimes we forget that that point. He's working throughout the Bible and all of history to bring salvation to the nations. This is what I want us to look at together today. I want us to jump into the middle of the biblical story, and I want us to see God's plan to save the nations by bringing the Messiah from his chosen people, Israel, and how that's his plan from the beginning, in the middle, and it's guaranteed to be fulfilled in the end. So, Isaiah chapter 45, a little bit of historic context. Uh, 200 years before the prophet Isaiah lived, Israel divided into two kingdoms, right? The, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Isaiah 1.1 tells us that the prophet Isaiah comes onto the scene with a vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reigns of King Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah of Judah. Then we, we know, if we're familiar with Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, his call to ministry came in the year that King Uzziah died, which was somewhere around 740 B.C. And he lived long enough um, to, to record the death of Sennacherib about 60 years later. So the first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah, they're set against the background of Isaiah's own time in the 8th century BC. But obviously we know it addresses the future, right? Some of the most famous passages about Christmas are in the early parts of Isaiah. But that's the first section of the book. In the final section of the book, uh, chapters 56 through 66, that's Isaiah mostly pointing us to the future, to the new heavens, to the new earth. But we're going to look in that middle section. We're going to look um, at chapter 45, which is in the second section, 40 through 55. These chapters are, are Isaiah prophesying about the future just a couple hundred years in, in advance, in the 6th century B.C. That's when we see things like the Babylonian captivity, the defeat of Babylon by Persia, the eventual return of Israel, the people of God from exile. And in the middle of that section, so chapter 45, right in the middle of that second section, we see that the northern kingdom of Israel is out of the picture and only Judah is left standing, right? And, and King Hezekiah, he finally leads his people to trust in the Lord and he found him to be powerfully faithful to keep his word. But Judah's faithfulness will not last. 
You see, in chapter 39, in 711 BC, Isaiah predicts the eventual downfall of Judah at the hands of the Babylonian Empire. But the odd thing is, He also, God declares through Isaiah that he will restore his people through uh, to their homeland using a foreign king. Using a foreign empire, a pagan nation to restore Israel. God's going to use Persia and Cyrus the Great. See, here in chapter 45, Isaiah is speaking to that restoration and how it will come about. But he also answers why. Why is God doing this? We're going to see four things that God declares here. And then I want to give us four points of application, specifically as it relates to God's heart for the nations, for all peoples. We will see, and this is the big idea. So if you take nothing else home today, if you're writing stuff down on your phone, write this down. This is the big idea I want you to take away today. Uh, we are going to see that God sovereignly orchestrates history for the salvation of the nations. God sovereignly orchestrates history for the salvation of the nations. So, finally, <laughs> let's read Isaiah chapter 45. It's a little bit of a long text, so take a deep breath, get ready, uh, and I'll read the whole thing through. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 1. The Lord says this to Cyrus, his anointed, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue the nations before him and disarm kings, to open doors before him and even city gates will not be shut. I will go before you and level the uneven places. I will shatter the bronze doors and cut the iron bars in two. I will give you the treasures of darkness and riches from secret places so that you may know that I am the Lord. I am the God of Israel who calls you by your name. I call you by your name for the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen one. I give a name to you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord and there is no other. There is no God but me. I will strengthen you, though you do not know me, so that all may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is no one but me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make success and create disaster. I am the Lord who does all these things. Heaven, sprinkle from above and let the skies shower righteousness. Let the earth open up so that salvation will sprout and righteousness will spring up with it. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to the one who argues with his maker, one clay pot among many. Does clay say to the one forming it, what are you making? Or or does your work say he has no hands? Woe to the one who says to his father, what are you fathering? Or to his mother, what are you giving birth to? This is what the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and its maker says. Ask me what is to happen to my sons and instruct me about the work of my hands. I made the earth and created humans on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens and I commanded everything in them. I have stirred him up in righteousness and will level all roads for him. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free, not for a price or a bribe, says the Lord of armies. 
This is what the Lord says. The products of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabians, men of stature, will come over to you and will be yours. They will follow you and they will come over in chains and bow down to you. They will confess to you, God is indeed with you and there is no other. There is no other God. Yes, you are a God who hides, God of Israel, our Savior. All of them are put to shame, even humiliated. The makers of idols go in humiliation together. Israel will be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You will not be put to shame or humiliated for all eternity. For this is what the Lord says, the creator of the heavens, the God who formed the earth and made it, the one who established it. He did not create it to be a wasteland, but formed it to be inhabited. He says, I am the Lord and there is no other. I have not spoken in secret somewhere in a land of darkness. I did not say to the descendants of Jacob, seek me in a wasteland. I am the Lord who speaks righteously, who declares what is right. Come, gather together and approach, you fugitives of the nations. Those who carry their wooden idols and pray to a God who cannot save have no knowledge. Speak up and present your case. Yes, let them consult each other. Who predicted this long ago? Who announced it from ancient times? Was it not I, the Lord? There is no other God but me, a righteous God and Savior. There is no one except me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other By myself I have sworn, truth has gone out from my mouth, a a word that will not be revoked. Every knee will bow to me, every tongue will swear allegiance. It will be said about me, righteousness and strength are found only in the Lord. All who are enraged against him will come to him and be put to shame. All the descendants of Israel will be justified and find glory through the Lord. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we praise you and we thank you for your word. And we ask now, Holy Spirit, that you would illumine our hearts and our minds to see your truth, God. Um, Just penetrate our hearts with, with your word, we ask, God. And we humbly bow ourselves before you right now. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. So, it's a long passage, right? (laughs) Nobody fell asleep in the middle of reading it. I hope not, right? Um, So, it's a long passage, but we're going to look at it in four different sections, okay? We're going to look at... um, uh, First, through, through verses 1 through 8... Okay, And we're going to see that God declares through Isaiah that he will sovereignly grant Cyrus an empire for the sake of his people and the restoration of Jerusalem. Okay, God will grant Cyrus an empire. But what exactly was he going to do? How was he going to make this come about, right? Well, first, we're told that he will anoint Cyrus as his instrument. We see this in verses 1 and 4, right? And even if you look back in chapter 44, verse 28, he calls Cyrus, my shepherd. But who is this Cyrus, right? This is someone we've heard about in in our world history class, right? 
But who was he? Well, he was the eventual founder of the Persian Empire and someone who conquered from Turkey, modern day Turkey, to India and from southern Iraq to, or northern Iraq to southern Russia. And that's the part of the world that I live, that I live in. That's where Jessica and I live now in that part of the world. So God was going to grant him an empire, but not only was he going to anoint him, but he was going to grab his right hand and give him victory. That's what we're told in verses 1 through 3, right? And this specific victory would be over Babylon, the empire who was enslaving the people of God at that time. But why? Why was God going to do this? Well, we're given two reasons as to why God would do this. First, God says, for the sake of his great name. That's what verse 5 and 6 are telling us, right? I am the Lord and there is no other. So that all may know from the rising of the sun to the setting, there, to its setting, there is no God but the Lord alone. For his great name, but also for the sake of his people, right? Verse 28 of chapter 44, God says that he is anointing Cyrus to fulfill his pleasure, which will be to see Jerusalem rebuilt and the temple's foundations relayed. Then in verse 4, he says he's doing this for the sake of his people. God will will do this to bring them back into their homeland. He will restore their homes. He will give them their freedom and so that they can rebuild the temple and they might be able to worship him properly. This is God's pattern throughout scripture, right? He works in mighty ways so that all would know he is the one true God for his ultimate glory and for the good of his people, right? For his glory and the good of his people. God glorifying himself is good for us. It's a good thing. But how? How is he, how is he going to do this? How is he able to do this? Like, how is he going to guarantee victory for Cyrus so that the people would be able, his people would be able to go back into Jerusalem? How? Well, the answer is simple but profound, right? He's able to do this because he is the sovereign Lord of all. But that word sovereign, We throw that around in church, right? That's kind of a churchy word that we don't use on the street all the time, right? What does that that mean? Sovereign, sovereignty. We say that about kings and queens. Well, I think verses 5 through 8 make clear the extent of his sovereignty. He's very clear what sovereign means. Let's read verse 5. He says, I am the Lord and there is no other. There is no God but me. I will strengthen you, though you do not know me, Cyrus, so that all may know from the rising of the sun to its setting, there is no one but me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Like, does it sound like someone who's messing around? (laughs) No, he wants it to be utterly clear that he alone is God, right? This plan doesn't have to do with Cyrus's military prowess or, or Israel earning God's favor. We already know that they don't deserve God's grace, right? The text even says that Cyrus didn't know God and that the Israelites are unworthy. No, this is the sovereign of the universe declaring what will be. And he goes on in, in verse 7. He says, 
I form light and create darkness. I make success and create disaster. I am the Lord who does all these things. So basically, this is a literary tool in Hebrew to contrast two opposites in order to say, I form everything. From this end to this end, everything in between, I'm over this. And, and we, we see that in other places in scripture, right? I declare the end from the beginning. I have removed your sins as far as the east is from the west. Like, this, this, these are familiar to us, right? Everything in between. God is saying, I'm sovereignly ruling over everything in between success and disaster. Everything between light and darkness. He is sovereignly ruling over all of that. But we shouldn't, we shouldn't fear this, right? We should be comforted by that fact, shouldn't we? What does verse 8 tell us? Verse 8 tells us, let the earth open up. So that salvation will sprout and righteousness will spring up with it. I, the Lord, have created it. We should be comforted because He causes righteousness to spring up. He brings about good things. He he is a good and righteous God and from Him good things come into this world. God is over all things, so ultimately He is the one who causes righteousness to spring forth. We can rest in the fact that our creator God is a good and gracious God, sovereign over everything. But really, none of these promises, none of this prophecy about Cyrus getting an empire, none of it, none of these guarantees of God's righteousness and goodness, they, they don't mean anything if what God declared beforehand doesn't come about, right? If it doesn't actually happen. So the question is, did it happen? Did what God said was going to happen, happen? Because if not, how can we trust his word at all? How can we trust that he's good and, and righteous? Well, what we didn't really do um, is really look at a historic timeline and fit in where Isaiah and Cyrus fit together. So I know this is going to be a bit dry. I, I was a history major, so I love this stuff. Um, but uh, I'm going to throw out some dates, and I think we have a PowerPoint. Hey, there we go. I made, Oh, it got messed up a little bit. That's okay. It'll still maybe help you visually not fall asleep while I go over the historic timeline a little bit, okay? Okay. Uh, so try to, try to just focus, but at the end, I'm going to summarize it all in one sentence, and that's all you have to, to take away, okay? But here, I'm going to run through the history of this a little bit because it's important, okay? So in 711 BC, before Christ, right, Isaiah predicts Cyrus will be born. He, he predicts that he will reign as emperor, defeat Babylon, rule the Jews, and release them to rebuild Israel. But Cyrus wasn't born until 111 years later in 600 BC. Okay, uh, Judah was sieged and destroyed by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar in 586 BC. Then Cyrus the per- Persian king, 50 years later, defeats Babylon in 539. Okay, so now, just at this point, just the fact that Cyrus was born, was named Cyrus, and defeats the Babylonians 150 years after it was prophesied, like our jaws should hit the floor right now, right? That's amazing. 
These predictions by God have come true. But that's not it. That's not the end. The Jewish historian Josephus records that Cyrus read Isaiah and fulfilled the prophecy. He wanted to fulfill that prophecy. He writes, Accordingly, when Cyrus read this and admired the divine power, an earnest desire and ambition seized up in him to fulfill what was so written. And so he released the Jews. Remarkable, right? 150 years later. But like, like reading an accepted and trustworthy historical source on the matter, it's amazing, right? And we can look to historical sources for confirmation, for information, right? But we, we as people who believe that this is divinely inspired, that this is the special revelation of God to us, we trust the Bible even more, right? So, we see in Ezra chapter 1 what happens. We see that in 537 BC, Cyrus releases the Israelites to go and rebuild their city and the temple. Like in, in Ezra 1 verses 1 through 3, it says, In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken through Jeremiah and Isaiah, the Lord roused the spirit of King Cyrus to issue a proclamation through his entire kingdom, and he put it into writing. This is what the King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord, the God of heavens, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build him a house at Jerusalem in Judah. All any of his people among you, may his God be with him, and may he go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem and Judah and build the house of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. So I realize some of you, again, probably fell asleep a little bit in that history lesson, right? That was a lot of information, but here is the main point. What God said would happen, happened. What God said would happen, happened. Like, Be amazed at the sovereignty and glory of our God. God worked out wars, the movement of empires, the plans of kings and rulers, shaping it all for the sake of His ultimate plans and purposes. Isn't it the, the, isn't this the, the picture that scripture paints for us? A God who is sovereign over all things? Like, this isn't just Old Testament stuff, right? In Acts chapter 17, Paul said plainly to the philosophers in Athens, he says this in verse 26. From one man, he, God, has made every nationality to live all over the earth and has determined their appointed times and boundaries of where they will live. Proverbs 21 tells us that God predicts the heart, or God directs the hearts of kings like a watercourse wherever he chooses. In Ephesians 1, we are told that God is the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will. Everything. God is sovereign. But at the same time, the Bible also tells us plainly that humans are responsible for their actions, right? It might not always make sense to us according to our human logic. Like, God is sovereign over everything, but we're still responsible. This is something that that many have wrestled with and in tears questioned God. Right? So it's not something we want to take lightly. But according to Scripture, we affirm both. 
God is sovereign over history and humans are responsible. Tim Keller, a pastor out in in New York, has really helped me grasp these truths. He gives a few examples of where we can see this balanced picture painted for us in Scripture, right? So, we see divine sovereignty and human responsibility in the story of Joseph, right? Genesis 50, 20, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, for the salvation of his people, In Acts 27, Paul is on a boat in the middle of the storm, right? And an angel shows up and tells Paul, hey, Paul, nobody on the boat is going to die. And Paul's like, that's great. So he goes and he tells everybody, hey, everybody, nobody on the boat is going to die. But then he says, also, don't get off the boat or you're going to (laughs) die. Well, which is it, Paul? Divine sovereignty, human responsibility. And the greatest example of this, of God's sovereignty and human responsibility, it's the cross, isn't it? Who intended for Jesus to be crucified? Was it Judas, his betrayer? Was it the Jewish rulers who accused him? Was it the mob? Or was it the sovereign plan of God for the salvation of sinners? In Acts chapter 2, Peter's answer, Peter answers this for us, right? He says, This Jesus of Nazareth, though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. Divine sovereignty, human responsibility. And Isaiah 45 is one of many scriptures that simultaneously affirm God's sovereign ordering of events and human responsibility for those events. D.A. Carson says, In a divine mystery we will never completely comprehend in this life, we embrace the truth and tension that divine sovereignty never cancels out human action and moral responsibility, corrupted and sinful as they are. Both are true. We affirm both. And we, we see this evidenced in our world today, right? Don't we? Like where we live in our part of the world. Refugees have been fleeing war since 2011, right? Thousands have been killed. Millions have been displaced. And we have, we have Assad, we have ISIS, Russia, Iran, Turkey, the U.S., and more. They're all involved in this war, right? Even if they're trying to do good things, they're responsible for those refugees having to flee their homes, right? But something you don't hear about, something that we get to be a part of, we personally know dozens and dozens of those refugees who have believed and been baptized who have come to faith in the last seven years, many of whom heard the good news for the first time outside their homeland. So two brothers, that two refugees who had to flee the war, flee their family farm, I got to disciple them for two years. And they love Jesus. They love the word. They love the gospel. They love the church. Now they had to flee again to another location. But they they text me and they tell me how they're sharing the gospel there in their refugee camp. Now tell me. Do you think those refugees coming to faith was, was in the plan of Assad? Or ISIS? Or Putin? Or Obama? Or Trump? 
Is God not sovereignly working and in and orchestrating that? Like, is he not working in and over history in the midst of wars and politics and immigration flows for the salvation of the nations and the glory of his name? And if that is true, is it not also true that God has sovereignly placed you where you are right now? Like, like if he is sovereignly ruling over empires and kings for the good of his people and the spread of the gospel, don't you think that he's sovereignly ruling over our, our jobs and our schools and our neighborhoods and our work? Is he not working in that for your good and for the spread of the gospel? Is God not sovereign over that too? But rather than, rather than trust in God's plan, isn't it our tendency to complain? That was constantly the Hebrews' problem, right? That's what, that's what is dealt with in this second section, in verses 9 through 13. Here we see plainly that God rebukes those who question Him. God knows the tendency of His people to complain, to question His plan and provision. He's seen it in the wilderness, right? He's seen it during the time of, of the judges. And so here he predicts that they will complain to him for using a foreign pagan king to restore them to their homeland. And so knowing the tendency of his people to complain and question, God shows the foolishness of complaining about his plan in verses 9 and 10. Okay, so who here has ever taken a pottery class or wood shop? Raise your hand. Okay. Now, has anyone ever had the clay look up at you and like, hey, you're shaping me wrong? (laughs) Has anybody had the wood say to you like, hey, you need to take a little bit more off my edge over here, then I'll look better? No, right? Can clay question what the potter is making out of it? Verse 9. Or the other example he gives, can a child complain about how a father or mother is fathering or mothering them? Well, of course, that's, they do all the time, right? That's a silly question. But, but can a child choose who will be their birth father or who will be their birth mother? No. God is saying through Isaiah that it's foolish to complain with the one who created everything about his plans, right? He made humans, and not only humans, but he made what we live on. He, he stretched out the heavens, it says in verse 12. Like the great Elon Musk, he can only plan to get someone to the moon in 2022. He's planning on it. Our God put that moon in its place, right? And he is the same God who planned to use Cyrus as his instrument of redemption for the sake of Israel. That's what it says in verse 13, right? I have stirred him, Cyrus, up in righteousness and will level all roads for him. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free. His plan was in order to set his people free, and yet he knew they would complain, right? It's the tendency of every human to complain and question God. This is a warning to us too, isn't it? This passage isn't just for that time. This is a warning for you and me. Don't we complain about God's plan? Constantly, right? We complain because we want to be our own bosses. We want to, we want to be in control. Deep down, we want to be our own gods, right? So often I question God's plan. God, 
how could this difficulty be in your plans? And if it is, why are you allowing it? Why don't you just stop it? Why this sickness? Why losing this job? Why this wayward child? Why the difficulty in getting the gospel out to the nations? But at this point, God doesn't simply sit us down and yell, stop it. Right? Sometimes that's, that's, that's the type of parenting I, I try to do. But no, God's not like that. We see that God's plans are good, that he doesn't simply rebuke and leave, right? In the following verses, he promises good towards his people, and this good, these good acts draw the nations in to the salvation, to, to the light that his people have received. But he also says he's going to shame those who reject him and choose idols instead. You see, this is the ultimate plan of God. He wasn't just using Cyrus to bring his people back into their homeland so so he could save them and judge idolaters. No, his purpose was to bring his people back into their homeland, back into Palestine, so that centuries later, in the little town of Bethlehem, a baby would be born to a Middle Eastern family, a baby who would live a righteous and holy life and eventually die on the cross, a death he didn't deserve, and take the wrath that he didn't deserve so that people like you and me, whoever put their faith in him, would be saved and live with him for eternity. That is God's plan. And we're pointed to that awesome and good plan in the following verses. God wasn't just getting his people back into their homeland. He was advancing his eternal plan to renew the universe and save people from their sins. Verses 14 through 21 points us to that. It points us to God's plan to shame idolaters and save the nations. God's plan to shame idolaters and save the nations. So he mentions the Egyptians, Cush, and the, and the Sabians, who were the ancestors of the Arabs, all representing the nations. He says they will be drawn in to the people of God. Why? Well, because they will see and confess that God is with his people and that there is no other God. They will see the salvation that the people of God have and be drawn to that, it says. But not all will come and confess, right? Right In verse 16, we see that those who reject God and serve idols will be put to shame. How exactly and, and who exactly, we don't know, because what does verse 15 tells us? tell us? Verse 15 tells us that God's plans are hidden, but good. He's a, his plans are hidden, but he's a good savior. We cannot know exactly what will happen, but we can have faith that God is good and does good. That is our God. And then in verse 18, Isaiah writes, this is what the Lord says. We see that this is a theme of this next section, right? God is speaking and declaring everything that he does and saying that it's good. And so he says in verse 19, he has not spoken in secret. He speaks righteously and declares what is right. Like, the God of all the universe, who made everything in it and stretched out the heavens, is speaking to us. He wants to communicate with his creation. He doesn't want to leave us in darkness. And what he says is good and righteous. So when he speaks, we should listen, right? Right? But what does he say? He says, there's one creator God, me. 
And so he follows that up and says, in verses 20 through 21, he says, you nations, come. All those who don't worship me, come and make your case for why you have rejected me. He says, idolaters, bring your case. Carry over over your wooden idols and let's duke it out. Let's go. I predicted 150 years before it happened that Cyrus would, would get an empire and release my people. What have you done, wooden idols? Come on, let's compare. He's challenging those who reject him. And, and we can see a picture of this, right, in, in our world today. Like in a tangible way, we can look at something like, like Buddhism or Hinduism or, or tribal religions, and, and we can clearly see parallels of this, right? Like lifeless idols being brought before God and saying, look, this is what I've chosen to worship instead of you. Gods who billions of people pray to, gods who cannot save. But, but it's perhaps less tangible to see idolatry in something like Islam, right? Or in secularism. Where's idolatry in those things, right? But in Islam, all we have to do is step back and see the idol of self-reliance, of self-righteousness and tradition. I always say that most mosques mosques are a good representation of Muslims. Most of my friends in the world are Muslim. And where we live, mosques are beautiful. Like you look on the outside, they're gorgeous. There are these huge domes and they have all these colors and mosaics. And, and they're just gorgeous from the outside. But then you go inside. They're kind of dank and dark, and ominous, right? I I think that's a good picture of a lot of Muslims. This outward righteousness, but inwardly there's darkness and loneliness and pain, and it's almost like they're whitewashed tombs, right? Outward beauty, but inward ugliness. They need to be changed from the inside. The idolatry is on the inside. And with secularism here in the state, idolatry does have some tangible physical representations here in America, right? Like American individualism, living in a collectivist culture. I see American individualism. Man, it's an idol. The love of self, the, of being good to yourself, of doing what you want, of what you think is right. Money, safety, power, selfishness, veiled in self-care. Right? Like many in America, and even in our churches, would have to make a case for rejecting God that's just as hollow as someone who's carrying their idol before God, right? It's just as hollow. God, I'm choosing this instead of choosing you. All idolaters will be put to shame by our God. Bring your case before me. Let's weigh out the evidence. But, but in verse 17, we're assured that those who have faith in God will be saved and not be shamed. You see, this is God's plan. Do good to his people, shame idolaters, so that his people might be a light to the nations and his glory might be on display and in turn draw all peoples, all tribes, tongues, and nations to worship him as Lord, the one true God. 
You see, this passage is about God predicting through Isaiah that he would use a Persian king to restore his people to their land. But even more so, in a greater sense, it's about the final fulfillment of his promises. When in Revelation 7, we see people from every tribe, tongue, and nation worshiping him and bowing before his throne. And that's in this last section, God is implementing that plan in verses 22 through 25. You see, God doesn't ever end with putting idolaters to shame. He doesn't start and stop with judgment. He does judge, but that's not the end of the story. Our God is gracious and merciful, full of compassion. His desire is for all to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And so here in the end of the chapter, God is calling all peoples, all tribes, all nations to turn to him and worship him. That's why he pleads in verse 22. What does he say? Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. He's imploring all people to repent, to turn to him, to believe, to put faith in him as Savior. Since humanity's fall, God has been calling the nations to himself. He is a merciful God and he's warning them of judgment, right? He's not hiding the fact that there's going to be judgment, He says in verse 24, plainly, those who are enraged against him will be put to shame. Warning them, don't do that. Don't go that way. Come this way. God calls the nations, all people of the earth to turn to him. Don't go down that path that leads to judgment and shame. And then in verse 23, Really, we, sh- we see something here that should make us fall to our knees in worship. Because that's exactly what is predicted here. Look, what does it say in verse 23? By myself I have sworn, truth has gone out from my mouth, a word that will not be revoked. So, God is saying, I'm telling the truth. I swear on my own word, I'm telling the truth. What does he say? Every knee will bow. Every tongue will swear allegiance. Does that sound familiar? Have we read that anywhere else in the Bible? Right? Like every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. We've heard that before, right? We've seen that somewhere in the New Testament in Philippians chapter 2, right? What does Paul write there? He, he says in verses 9 through 11, For this reason, God has highly exalted him and gave him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God is good and his promises are true and trustworthy. Not only did he predict 150 years before Cyrus that he would give him an empire, but 700 years before it happened, he predicted that the Messiah, the one to whom all eventually will bow, either in surrender or in worship, he predicted that he would come 700 years before. And so, in Philippians chapter 2, before that, it says, Jesus Christ, who, existing in the form of God, 
did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Every knee will bow to the one who died on a cross and rose again. Out of worship or surrender, it's promised in Isaiah 45 and in Philippians chapter 2. Not only will every knee bow before our Lord and Savior, but in verse 25, God promises that all the descendants of Israel will be justified and find glory. All descendants of Israel. But does that help us? Like I'm one-eighth Jewish. Is that talking about me there? What, what is it saying? All descendants of Israel will be justified. Who's Israel? Well, Galatians 3.16 helps us with that, right? What does Paul write there? He says, now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say and to seeds as though referring to many, but referring to one and to your seed, Abraham, who is Christ. It, it says not seeds, but seed. You see, all Jews and Gentiles who are in Christ, the seed, the true and better Israel, will be justified and glorified. We are promised justification when we are in Christ, the true Israel. So, from, us, from sovereignly giving a pagan king victory to the nations bowing before the eternal king, God is sovereignly orchestrating history for the spread of the gospel and the salvation of the nations. He's orchestrating that. So quickly, what are we called to do? What are we supposed to do with that? Like this big, huge thing, God is over all of history and he's sovereignly ruling empires and presidents and kings. That's all he under his purview. Well, what? How do, how do you grab hold of that? That's a lofty thing to think about, right? Well, I think there are very, there's very clear application for us in this text. First, <clears throat> first, this text is calling us to trust. Trust in the sovereign God. The God who made every nationality to live all over the earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they will live. The God who orchestrated the movement of empires for the sake of his plan. This God has placed you where you are right now. This sovereign God has placed you here even today. So you can trust that he's sovereignly working in your life for his glory his glory and your good. You can trust that he has placed you next to that unbeliever, next to that Muslim coworker, so that you might love them and share the gospel with them. And for some of you, you can trust that when he calls you to move to somewhere else, somewhere to live among unreached peoples, whether that's another part of this country, another part of the globe, or another part of the city, to live among them, you can trust that he is sovereignly ruling over that. He's working in that plan. To be honest, if I didn't have a, a growing and hopefully healthy trust in the sovereignty of God, 
I know I could not stay where I am doing what I'm doing. There's no way. Right? When, when seeds I cast seem to fall among weeds, when faith sprouts up and suddenly dies off, right? I can still trust in the midst of that that some plant, some water, but God causes the growth. Trust. Trust in the sovereign God. Not only trust, but flee. Flee complaining and questioning God's plan. Like when the economy tanks, or when it's really good, but not as good as it is for someone else, right? When politics seem awry, when your family is in shambles, when life is just hard, trust God and flee complaining. As Charles Spurgeon said, he, he said, He who counts the stars and calls them by their names is in no danger of forgetting his own children. He knows your case as thoroughly as if you were the only creature he ever made or the only saint he ever loved. God knows what's happening in your life. The plans for your life, but also the plans for others. So when, when the friend you've been sharing the gospel with for years continues to reject it, trust in God's sovereignty and flee a complaining spirit. What was Jonah guilty of? Jonah was guilty of arguing with the Lord, right? He didn't like God's plan. He didn't want God to save his historic enemy. How are we going to react if God saves our historic enemy? Are we going to complain about God's plan? Or are we going to rejoice in that salvation? Resist the temptation to argue with God about his mysterious plans. Flee. Flee complaining. Trust. Flee. Warn. Warn those around you about false religion. What did we read today? We read today that God is going to put idolaters to shame, right? So warn those Westerners who worship themselves, those Muslims who serve a false God and work for self-righteousness, those Christians in name only who are trusting in their good deeds and not in the cross of Christ, those Buddhists or Hindus or spirit worshipers. Warn them of the dangers of false religion. The nations are lost and need to be warned about coming judgment. They will be put to shame if they do not repent. And after you warn them in love, proclaim. Proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Proclaim that there is one God who made us and loves us. But in Adam, all people throughout history have sinned and rejected him as God. But since he is gracious and merciful, Jesus the Messiah came as a man, lived a righteous and holy life in our place, died a death he didn't deserve, took the wrath that we deserve, and rose three days later so that all those who believe in him would be saved and live for eternity with God as members of his kingdom. That's the gospel. You just heard the gospel in like 20 seconds, right? That gospel that you just heard so easily right now, that's the gospel that, that nearly 7,000 unreached people groups made up of almost 3 billion people, individual people, that's the gospel that they have little or no access to. And you just heard it in 20 seconds. So the question is, are you going to join God in his plan? 
He is sovereignly orchestrating history so that the nations might hear and believe. And the means by which he, he has ordained for the gospel to get out is for people like you and me to be a part of local churches and members of local churches proclaiming that good news where we live and around the world globe for the good of the lost and for the glory of God. He's doing that. The question is, are you going to join him in that? And for some of you that are here, you're more worried about being in that camp of rejecting God. You're one of the people that God is saying right now, turn, repent, all the ends of the earth. Come to me and be saved. Come to the light. See, this passage is for Christians, for believers, but it's also for non-believers. God is orchestrating history for the salvation of all those who would believe in him. So are you going to believe in Him? Or are you going to reject Him again today? You have that choice laid before you. God is sovereignly orchestrating history for the salvation of the nations. Let's join Him in that. Pray with me. God, I'm such a sinner. Lord, I'm a sinner in need of a great Savior. And you are that great Savior, God. When I think of your holiness, your goodness, your righteousness, Lord, I know that I'm unworthy of who you are. And yet, in love, Jesus, you came and you saved me. I praise you and I thank you for that, God. I know it is only by your kindness. God, I pray for any here who are believers. God, I pray that that your word today would work in their hearts, God, and that you would send them out. You would send them out to tell of of your great salvation, of your gospel, of of be a light to the nations all around them and around the globe, God. There's so many people who have not heard your truth, your gospel, Lord. I pray that you would bring people out of this group, even today, to take that gospel to unreached places. I pray that people in this room would take it to their neighbors across the street, their co-workers next door. God, may we not be ashamed of the gospel, but may we, like Paul, boldly share it in love. God, I pray for any who are here who have rejected you, God, maybe not with their lips, but in their actions and in their hearts, they've rejected you. God, I pray that that you would open their eyes to the truth. God, that you would open their ears to this gospel. God, I pray that today they would repent and believe in you, Jesus. You are sovereignly over all things, God, and we entrust ourselves to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.